Hi, I'm David Leach of UVic's Department of Writing. Just a heads up that this episode of our podcast is part of a special series of recorded conversations with guest writers and other experts uh, from my graduate seminar on the theme of memory and the creative process. We hope you enjoy. All right, welcome back. I am super excited to introduce my departmental colleague in podcasting partner, Deborah Campbell. Uh, Deborah is an award-winning journalist creative and creative nonfiction author whose feature articles have appeared in major, major national and international publications, such as the Literary Review of Canada, Harper's, Adbusters, The Walrus, Foreign Policy, Canadian Art, and The Economist. She's the author of two wonderful groundbreaking books of literary journalism that both explore the human impact and com uh, political complexities of the conflicts in the Middle East, uh, A Disappearance in Damascus, and This Heated Place. Please welcome Deborah, and welcome Deborah here. Thank you, David. Uh, now we're here to talk about memory and the creative process, both how writers use memory in their creative process and how they represent human memory in their work. Uh, so let's start by exploring your own memories. What's, what's your first memory of writing or wanting to be a writer? Yeah, I know there's a lot of writers that can remember being seven years old and thinking they were going to go on to write. And I was definitely not one of those. Um, in fact, uh, one of my memories is when I graduated from high school and had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. There was really only one thing that I knew for sure. And that was that I was not going to be a journalist. I knew this because I had been asked to uh, write some articles for a local newspaper when I was in high school, and I was asked to report on my high school's basketball games. And I really uh, was unenthusiastic about basketball. I didn't go to any of the games. And what I would do is essentially corner one of the players uh, the next day in the hallway and jot down a few notes and hand those in. And I, I, I didn't like doing it. I had no team spirit. And so I knew that that's, at least I knew that I could cross that off my list for my future. And in fact, uh, our high school had just introduced this uh, computer program where it would, you know, you'd fill in some uh, multiple choice questions and it would tell you what you would do with your life. And so I was really also very cynical about whether I could be, you know, figured out so easily. So I did this program and the answer came back and said, journalist, journalist or editor. And so then I absolutely knew that these things were not for me. Um, but what happened was soon after that, I, I moved to Paris for a year and I was, I had a job there and I was studying French lit and, uh, and after that I moved to Tel Aviv University through a long series of events that would take a long time to explain. And, um, while I was at Tel Aviv University, the director of the, the program I was in where I was studying Middle Eastern studies asked me if I would write my impressions. And... So I don't know why she asked me, uh, but she did. And uh, I wrote a series of vignettes. They were little uh, moments that I had had with people, little uh, almost mini profiles uh, within a say thousand word story. 
And I gave it to her. And the next thing I knew, uh, she said, oh, it's it's been published uh, in a newspaper in, in Toronto. And so that was my first publication. But even then, I, I didn't really think of this as a possibility. I remember hearing, um, I think his name's Ben Harper. He's a Canadian opera singer talking about growing up in his small town and never having met another opera singer. And so it didn't seem like a possibility. And I, I had never met anyone like this. So I would say, I think sometimes your work chooses you. And, and it seems like my work eventually did choose me um, after that first publication. Oh, fantastic. That's a great memory. Uh, so what, what role or roles would you say that memory plays now in your creative process as a writer? I think memory is everything. I, I think that we, all of our language is memory. Um, we learned it. If we were born in a different place in a different um, language community, we would have a different language and different memories attached to that. So I think it's absolutely fundamental to what I do. Um, at the same time, I think often when we talk about memory, we mean uh, childhood memories, uh, or we mean absolutely personal experience. And certainly those are really, really important parts of what I do and what writers do, um, but also we we increase our our context for memory and our memories by reading, uh, by talking to people, by going out and having deliberate experiences in order to increase our our library of memories, I suppose. Um, but memory also really shapes writing in, in mysterious ways too. I find often, even if I do include a childhood memory, it's almost never the one that I would have expected. Uh, it tends to come you know, from that distant place uh, where, where writing comes from. Great. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about, um, you described an ambivalence about memory. Yeah, I'm, I'm very ambivalent about memory. I mean, it's inherently unreliable. Um, we know that the research shows that we remember things and our memories fade very quickly. We have short term memory and uh, our long term memory, it, it, it tends to shift and a lot of things are forgotten. So even recently, I was writing something about an experience I'd had and um, I had uh, uh, an idea in my head of what had happened and I went and looked at my notes and they were completely different. I mean, they were, first of all, full. I mean, I had a lot of things written down and I had forgotten those things, um, which is, you know, the importance of taking notes. Uh, if you can write at the time taking notes, but even you know, there's a, there's a half-life to memory. So even if you're taking notes within an hour, it's better than 24 hours and 24 hours is better than a week. And, but sometimes even uh, three or five years is, is, is good. Um, you can, you know, certain sediment sinks to the bottom, um, but having those notes are, are really important. But the other part of memory isn't, isn't just that it's unreliable, it's that it's filtered through our beliefs. Um, so that's why 
memories change over time. And I think a lot of us have had this experience where we went through something really difficult. And at the time it seemed um, devastating or uh, there's a bitterness attached to it. And as time goes by, we can go back to those memories and they shift. And some of the things that were difficult at the time turn out to be um, gifts in certain ways. Um, there's this memoir that I read by uh, Kent Harriff, who's a wonderful American writer who died a, a few years ago, um, Plain Song, one of his great books. Um, but he talks about being born with a cleft palate in the 1930s. And so he had a, had a hair lip and this was a disfigurement that made his childhood a kind of hell. Um, and uh, he, he talks in that memoir about how um, if you had told him, you know, when he was in his 20s, that one day he would consider this a gift, he would have called you a fool. And now he, you know, writing late in life, he was recognizing that that gave him uh, the gift of being able to pay attention, to look at others, and to uh, imagine his way into their experience in a way that if he hadn't had this great difficulty in early life, he would never have had. So this is just an example of the way memory uh, can change its meaning over time. Because we talk, if we talk about narrative, if we talk about storytelling, one of the ways I've heard it defined is as chronology with meaning. So what is the meaning of the memory? And I find often when memory crops up in my writing, what I have to ask myself is what does it mean? Why am I thinking about that? Um, and this is where, you know, it can be really important to, um, to be careful about how we contextualize it. Um, and also, I, I think we also live in a time right now where personal experience is paramount. And I think it's, it's playing in in some ways to this you know, cult of the individual, um, that the self is the most important thing. Uh, and I, I, I really disagree with that. And I think it's a, it's a dangerous place to be. Um, not that our personal experience doesn't matter. I don't mean that at all. Um, but uh, I think sometimes when we privilege our own experience over the rest of the worlds, I think we are really missing something. We're missing connectivity and, uh, and a sense of, of um, context. Um, one of the examples I can give to that is when I was writing A Disappearance in Damascus, the story is centered around uh, Iraqi refugees in Syria. And these are people who had been through experiences that uh, were, were you know, powerfully devastating. And so my experience in the year that I spent in Syria and the surrounding area um, was part of the book, but it could never dominate the book. Absolutely not. It was not the central story. Um, and I needed to... Um, 
be very careful about how much I put in about my own experience when I was dealing with people whose stories were so much more serious than my own. Um, so that's about partly about humility and context um, and the importance of drafting. And I think there, there can be a little bit of narcissism to the, 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 the place of personal experience in, uh, in, in writers' lives. And we need to be, be careful of that. The culture is pushing us that way sometimes. So there I have a lot of ambivalence about it. I also see that people, I, I've also seen people use memory for vengeance. I've seen them use it to build tribes and to go us versus them and to use it as a way not to see themselves in other people. Um, so there's a lot of, um, a lot of things that, I, that I, I, uh, I try to keep in mind when I'm, when I'm writing about myself. Great, yeah, those are some important cautions there. Um, moving from personal memories, uh, as a journalist, we are, we are asked to write the, the so-called first draft of history from either events we've witnessed or far more often from other people's memories of events, often triangulating contradictory uh, versions of the past from people's testimonies. I mean, how do you negotiate the challenges of seeking the quote-unquote truth uh, through other people's memories as uh, as a researcher and a literary journalist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's so important. I was uh, actually just today I was reading uh, an article about the Caliphate podcast that um, the New York Times did, um, where they had uh, one of their very senior star reporters go and um, interview um, ex ISIS or current ISIS fighters and put together a podcast that you know was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize and and it so happens that the main character who's in almost every episode uh actually a Canadian guy who had uh, said he joined ISIS and committed all kinds of crimes uh never did any of that in fact didn't go to Syria at all and um so the whole story has fallen apart and it's just a, you know, it's the worst nightmare a writer could have is to do something like that. And the problem is, you know, the reporter should have done exactly uh, what you said, David, which is to triangulate. Um, that means to um, talk to others, to confirm, to look at uh, documents that are proof. Um, um, one of the things that I do when I'm talking to people about their experience, um, and, and I'm not talking about, you know, what did you have for breakfast kind of experience, but I'm talking about um, as much as possible to talk to others who have been there, um, get as many stories as I can from the very start to try and see what is representative and what's anomalous, um, compare them to the records and compare them to one another. Um, if you have more than one person who says so, that's some kind of confirmation, but the more that you have, the better. If you have um, photographs, if you have documentation, checking up on them. I mean, when I was writing A Disappearance in Damascus, one of the main characters, Ahlam, she's a good friend of mine, I spent a lot of time with her, um, and she had, but I was with her when she was in Syria, and she's an Iraqi woman who had been kidnapped for a week, 
in Baghdad um, and she had been through amazing things and done amazing things. However, I wasn't there for those things. Um, and so that started to really bother me because I knew what I had seen, but I didn't know what I had not been there to see. So what I did, what I decided to do was, first of all, I asked her for documentation. So I got a lot of letters that were written by people that had known her in Iraq and seen her work. They knew about, there was documentation of the kidnapping. There was documentation of her work in Baghdad when she was kind of running her own show, almost like a huge um, kind of community center in the middle of the disasters of war in Baghdad. And uh, had there were amazing letters. And a lot of these were coming from like American officials that had known her, people that didn't have any reason to write them, except they were supporting her, um, uh, you know, asking for her to have help when she had to flee Iraq. I also um, tracked down journalists that had know known her and worked with her over the years in Iraq and in Syria and talked to them. And so this allowed me to trust myself. It allowed me to trust my writing and trust her. And as much as I trusted her on a personal level, you know, when people are going through really difficult things, their memory uh, can be wrong. And as I said, memory is, is unreliable. So how, how else would I know for sure um, that what she was telling me was true? So I really felt a, a great, great sense of relief when I had done this fact-checking. Um, so yes, I think we can do it and, and we should do it. Okay, great. Well, you, you've worked uh, uh, a lot in the Middle East, including Israel and Palestine, uh, Syria, where questions around memory and historical rem uh, remembering are especially fraught and even fought over with com multiple competing narratives about how certain events should be remembered. What have your experiences there taught you about the politics of memory? Yeah, the narrative wars. I mean, we're living in them, right? I mean, um, uh, we're finding that people are having a harder and harder time, uh, uh, even knowing what the other people are talking about. We're living in different information realms. Um, it, um, but the, you know, I think Israel-Palestine is a really good example because um, it's it's two competing narratives. If you want it, you know, there's more than two, but. Um, the, the, the thing with Israel-Palestine is that one narrative doesn't necessarily cancel out the other narrative, right? Um, so Palestinians may be living under Israeli occupation, that's true, um, living at the point of a gun, um, and their whole life circumscribed by, um, by uh, the, the politics uh, of what Israel's doing there, but that doesn't change the fact that um, uh, most Israelis are descendants of refugees uh, who escaped who escaped death in the Holocaust. I mean, these these two things can be true, and they are true. Um, so I remember one of the things that uh, someone said to me um, shortly uh, shortly after I'd started on uh, this heated place, which is my my uh, exploration of the Israel Palestine conflict, looking at it from you know lots of different people's points of view, he said, um, what you see depends on where you are standing. So here I think it's really important to go and stand in a number of different places 
and understand that um, those perspectives can be valid, but they don't cancel out the other perspectives. Um, and that's how, I mean, we're talking about complexity here and complexity is something that our uh, current media culture is just really bad at. Um, one of the things I've been thinking about a lot is there's a really good study by uh, Amanda Ripley called um, Complicating the Narratives, where she talks about how um, we're trying to, we, we have these really simplified narratives right now where it's good versus evil. And, um, uh, and it's making it um, hard to see uh, other ways of thinking. And sometimes in order to, to tell different kinds of stories, we have to ask different kinds of questions. Um, we also have to embrace complexity rather than try and get it all fitted into a nice neat media frame, sort of a, a, a superhero versus villain theme, which I, I see you know, in a lot of reporting now that makes me um, um, despair in some ways um, because people aren't, um, aren't able to see the other very easily now. Um, but I mean, I think as writers, we can come at things sideways. We can, um, we can tell a, a different, more complicated story and not cut off the things that um, contradict uh, the contradictions that are, you know, inherent in humanity, right? Um, so, for example, um, writing about refugees, um, uh, we, we would love all refugees to be wonderful people, right? They should all be pure victims. Um, and that's not human. Um, so even when I was writing about Ahlam, who's this, you know, an amazing person, she's a very flawed individual. And so part of my uh, my writing was to make sure that I included her recklessness, for example, um, and uh, uh, some of the things that she did that were unwise um, because, and some of the people that she surrounded herself with who were, you know, pretty shady characters sometimes because this was in a refugee situation and you don't choose. Um, so, I mean, this, these, these complications make something more true, not less. And I think we have to, um, you know, to be true, we are not necessarily creating these black and white narratives. Um, so, yeah, I, I think, uh, I don't know if that, that really talks to memory, but um, uh, the, the narrative war is real and introducing the complexities can sort of change the way people read that. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. And it actually ties in nicely to my my next question, which you've talked about a little bit already, and you've also written about so well in your LRC article, that, uh, how we live in, in this increasingly mediated world of, of digital communication, of fragmented takes and viral memes and anonymous internet voices. I mean, are these uh, uh, crowding out our, our mental spaces, steeping our brains and social media risk either pushing out personal memories or inflating personal memories or, or diminishing our attention for, for longer form meaning-making narratives. And just, I guess, how does the digital world impact our sense of eyewitness memory and collectively agreed upon the sense of, of reality? 
Yeah, well, I think, first of all, if you're spending 10 hours a day on your phone, how much reality are you witnessing in the first place? What are you paying attention to? Um, and these sort of hot, you know, hot takes that I see sort of congealing around things as they are happening are, are framing stories so that we can't see what's really going on. We can't see the complexity, first of all. And I mean, even as we, as we know, say with your, uh, with a, your, your social media uh, accounts, it, we, we don't put up the truth about ourselves. Um, first of all, it, it, it's not there for that, right? It's a, it's a curated space. Um, and so we see fake lives, we create fake selves, um, and um, we just spend so much time in it. Um, that we aren't spending a lot of time in reality. And I think for writers especially, this is really dangerous. Um, we, um, our, our, our work takes place in a kind of slow time. Um, and this is all the eternal present, right? The, we, we live in the eternal present where um, uh, everything that happened um, three months ago or a year ago is kind of disappeared or even a narrative storyline that the media is carrying forward, suddenly it's gone. Um, and uh, so I think, I, 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 I think it's getting harder for, for writers. Um, I think as writers, we need to discipline ourselves with our intake of these, uh, these powerful voices um, that are influencing how we think about events, what we see, and as much as we can um, see for ourselves. Uh, and also I'll still be able to have our own thoughts. Uh, I feel like independent thought becomes more difficult when we're constantly brought in the barrage of the, the crowd voices. Um, uh, and uh, one of the one of the, the memories that I have that, that sticks with me often um, that I think started me down the path of um, going out into places rather than you know just reading about them and writing about them um, was when I was a student at Tel Aviv University and I went to the West Bank and I was um, talking to a couple of girls at my age, I was 20 at the time, um, and they were helping me to, you know, find a find a way back to Jerusalem because the buses had closed and they were asking me about my studies and I was telling them what I was, you know, studying Islam and Judaism and, and um, history and politics and, and Hebrew and so forth. And I said, you know, what do you think about the occupation? And this was a word that we would hear in class a lot. And I had read in the news, but I didn't know what it was like to live it. And I wanted to get their perspective. And one of them said to me, don't believe us. Don't believe your professors. See for yourself. And that see for yourself really stayed with me and became, I would say, the leitmotif of a lot of the work that I've done. Um, and how do you do that if you're living inside this uh, corporately mitigated environment where the voices that are privileged are the loudest 
and the ones that most trigger your fight or flight impulses. So in that way, they are propagandist. They are designed to keep you there, to addict you and, um, and to make you angry and fearful. And, uh, and so that is not a place where good creative work is done. So I think we really, as writers, have to find some way. I mean, how clever is it, too, that the place where we are protesting against all the ills of society that this same corporate structure has created is where we get to vent about it, right? So we vent in the, and make them money in the place where we think we're solving the problems and we're not. So I think that's um, that's where I see you know a lot of a lot of ill and a lot of uh, inability now to take nuanced positions, inability to ask deeper questions that take more than uh, a few seconds. I don't think it's healthy necessary. Would you publish, you know, your very first draft after just after writing it? Um, I mean, I, I I think we we should be thinking about you know draft four, or draft twelve, uh, and that's a different kind of time and and thinking that is involved. So, um, I, yeah, I do think it's affecting our memory. It's affecting our ability to change once we've construed an identity for ourselves online how can we really change our mind if we've taken a strong position about something publicly um so one of the things i do with myself is is try not to post things uh that i don't know very much about <laughs> try not to comment on everything and stick to the things that i know best Great, yeah. And, and just as creepily every so often, it, the algorithms kick back a little montage of your quote-unquote memories, so they're kind of colonizing our memories as well. I, th I, think, I think, especially for young people, that to have to own an identity that you had when you were 19 or 15 is really um, a tragic way of being frozen in time, right? We're supposed to change and grow and and throw off the old ideas that we were, you know, that we might have embraced at that age. Um, so it's inhibiting growth. Uh, right. the, the importance uh, of forgetting over our memory. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Oh, well, if you if you feel comfortable talking about a work in progress that might not be in its fourth draft, uh, can you tell us a little bit about your current book project and how it intersects with questions of historical memory or memory? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I'm not going to talk about it very much because it's exactly in that place where I'm trying to find the meaning. I have the memories, but I, I need to find the meaning in them and figure out which ones are, are uh, useful and what story I want to tell. So I'm in that process, which feels uh, sort of tricky and quiet and um and it feels like certain things are surfacing and then I look into them and and some of them uh I think will will help me along the way but it's it's a really um you know you have to trust that um form will emerge from chaos and I'm still in the chaos phase, but I do find that that's true, that form does emerge from the chaos and you have to trust it and continue with it, keep holding its hand 
um, through that creative process. And memory is doing its work down there too, and forgetting. Like I think sometimes when we write too soon after an event, um, it's too, we don't have the requisite distance. Um, and so I feel like I have the requisite distance now to write about a number of things, um, but I'm trying still to, to parse the meaning. Great. Uh, just a couple of last questions before I turn it over to students. Are there any other authors that you admire for how they explore, explore or question different forms of memory in their writing? Any kind of reading tips for us? Hmm. Oh, there's so many. There's so many. Um, I, I love unusual perspectives on history. Uh, so a couple that come to mind, Richard Kapuscinski's The Emperor, uh, which is about the uh, rise and fall of Haley, um, the Ethiopian Emperor Haile Selassie, who was overthrown in 1974. And what Kapuscinski did, Polish journalist, he went and he tracked down the servants who had worked in the royal court and he interviewed, you know, the guy who would, because um, Haley Selassie had a dog that would piss on the shoes of all the visiting diplomats. And he had one, one servant whose job was to go and um, with, around with the cushion and wipe off their shoes. And, but what he's really doing when he's talking to these courtiers is he's looking at how power works. And he's also kind of creating, um, a social commentary for what Poland was dealing with under the Soviet Union. So he had, a, you know, lots of meaning in that history he's getting, and he's getting a history that's not a, not at all the kind of um, official history that someone in power might give, but those who are both out of power and never had much to begin with. Um, so that's, that's one. Um, and uh, I loved Eliana, Elena Poniatowska's uh, Here's to You, Jesusa, which is Elena Poniatowska's, I don't know why I like so many Polish writers. I have no clue. I have no link to them otherwise, but she's a Polish, French, Mexican writer who spent most of her life in Mexico since early childhood. And she went and interviewed this wo woman, an illiterate woman who had lived through the Mexican revolution in early 20th century. Uh, never learned to read and write, spent about two years interviewing her, and then wrote a novel based on her experience. So I'm interested in this sort of fact fiction uh, intersection, even though I don't personally write in it. Um, and then I would say like one of the great novels I've read in the past few years is probably Anna Burns' Milkman, which won the Booker a couple of years ago. And it's, um, she's an Irish novelist, and it's really about her teenage years in the Irish Troubles, but it's brilliant. I mean, it is not a, this is not reportage. This is a way of talking about the universality of how conflict works. So when I was reading it and I was thinking a lot about um, Iraq and Syria, I saw all of that in her in Milkman. So if you want to have your mind blown, I would recommend, um, I would recommend that book as well. Oh, definitely. That sounds fantastic. All right. My, my, my last question, if it's, it's not too morbid, but uh, as writers, we're often kind of uh, working in the present while mining the past for future readers. What would you like to be remembered for as a writer? 
someone who bore witness to her times. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Deborah.